2: Welcome to The Delicious Podcast with me, Jilly Smith. This week, a new look or a new listen podcast with more features from Delicious Magazine. So as well as the monthly magazine format like this one, you'll see Slice of My Life, Taste Like Home, and In Residence on the podcast, shaping those extended interviews and features with all our usual delicious favourites. And no longer are they extra portions, it's all just delicious from now on. But first, instead of editor of Delicious, Karen Barnes, telling us what's in the latest issue of the magazine, we've asked her to highlight some of the new trends in thinking and in foodstuffs that she's spotted amongst the goodies that come into Delicious HQ. In the first opinion slot, she predicts the rise and rise of the green
3: slimy stuff. Some months we might get a 100 new things sent into the Delicious office. And a key part of my job is filtering all of that information and working out what's worth knowing about, what's worth writing about and I'm picking the very essential key things to put in the pages of the magazine we try everything we look at things, we taste things we work out whether they're really worth knowing about and then we decide whether or not to write about them and one of the items that's been coming across my desk a lot is seaweed Mm -hmm. because there are new companies that are producing uh, I suppose, consumer-accessible ways of using it because no one, well, a very rare person is going to go to the beach and pick some off the beach and eat it, I no. would suggest. Would
2: you agree? Uh, well, absolutely. And the other thing about those nori packs is that you never use that much. I mean, there's far too much. But these are convenient little packs that you, what, to sprinkle on food on? Yes, that seems to be the, the
3: way. There's a company here called Sea Spoon that I've got in my hand and uh, there's another one called Mara. Seaweed, where it's dried and then mixed with other ingredients like sesame seeds, maybe a bit of chilli, and then you can just sprinkle it on a salad Mm, or maybe in a smoothie. And it it, it, it has a lot of seasoning; it tastes like a seasoning. In fact, Heston Blumenthal has, I believe, suggested that it could be used in place of salt by the NHS because it it's it's such nutritious. And one area that we um, are soon going to be covering in the magazine is how good seaweed is for you, because it's so nutrient-dense. And I would suggest it's going to be, in the next five years, something that we're going to be hearing a lot more about, how we should be eating it, how we can make it accessible to everyday palates, um, because it's so good for you. And science in this area is in its early days but we do know that it's packed with nutrients people have been eating it for thousands of years in the UK waters how many varieties do you think we have around our coastline go on 600 to 700 varieties of seaweed. But, and a, but people don't pick it off the beach and dry it and eat it as well, is, do they? Well, they used to, and people still do in some parts of the world. We certainly don't here. And you need to, we need to know more about yeah, it, don't we? we do. So I would say this is a case of watch this space because these products that I've mentioned are, which are available online are um, the ways of making it accessible. But I think as we know more about it, we will start to think about ways that we can eat it more and include it more in our diets in the same way that you know two years ago we started to hear a lot about gut health and Mm -hmm. how important it is to eat things that encourage uh, good bacteria in our gut. Mm -hmm. Seaweed is a new way of introducing nutrient-dense ingredients into our diets and it's an important thing.
2: Now, Jack Stein, son of Rick and Jill Stein, has not only just written his first book, World on a Plate, he's just produced his first child, too. I met him on his publication day, just two weeks after the birth of baby Milo. Before I asked him for a slice of his life, I asked him how fatherhood is going.
0: It's going well, yeah. No, mum and dad are stoked. They've got another grandchild, and um, my partner Lucy's parents are over from Perth. So, yeah, we're getting a lot of help and a lot of advice, but really, you just got to do it yourself, don't you? You just he got to did. crack on. So, um, yeah, no, it's good. He's eating well and he's got, you know, he's in good health. So, yeah, we're all very happy.
2: Great. So, you just led me to the very first question slice of your life. Um, what do you dream of feeding that little boy in a couple of years' time?
0: Mm, well, we're going to go to Japan, I think, this winter with him, even though he won't be able to appreciate it. So I think, because of that, I think we'd li- like to f- I'd like to feed him uh, some nice sashimi, you know, some nice uh, salmon, like oily fish, because my uncle's a a no, neurophysiologist, Don, at Maudlin in Oxford, and he researches um, fish oils on development. So I think it's very important to have lots of oily fish. So, yes, yeah, some nice salmon and some... You know, some scallops and tuna and all that sort of stuff. So assuming yeah, I love that.
2: Keep it in the family. Yeah. Now, when you were a lad, quite young, your parents would take you and your two brothers away for three months at a time on the travels that mm. they needed to do to research books, TV programmes, restaurant and all that kind of stuff. What was the one thing that you really missed on those travels? back at home
0: oh god no one's ever asked me that question (laughs) before what do i really miss roast dinner because it's winter time isn't it in england and it's you know you'd be in in india or the far east or australia and it'd be hot and those those family meals dad put he does put a big value on sitting down together and having that roast so we sort of missed out on three months of roasts
2: and you say in your book that um you know those times were pretty intense and you didn't see your parents a lot of the rest of the year but you really saw each other every second of every day what's the, the one thing that you just couldn't bear to be around
0: <laughs>
2: during those yes, three months
0: not a good question um <laughs> I, I just think that after that long, you know, you, at the beginning you like haven't seen you and then I think it just starts to wear, just the constant, because you you know, actually you then it's a bit like being on holiday, school holidays, you like almost look forward to going back and then you get back, like, oh why am I back at school, so it's a bit like that, but I guess it is hard, mum and dad chose hard places to travel and I think getting three boys and those two through India and through the in, in the, in the 80s when it wasn't the setup wasn't like it is now, you know, a lot of dodgy hotels, and I think that the, the stress was just quite hard to yeah. deal with.
2: A recipe you can't live without.
0: Well, it, it, depending on the weather, <laughs> I think roast beef, I pride myself on my roast.
2: What's the key ingredient in your Sunday <laughs> roast that beats everybody else's?
0: Well, marmite in the gravy. Yeah, marmite, marmite, and Chinese rice wine vinegar in the gravy. Yeah,
2: good top tip. Okay, fast forward twenty years. What's the food legacy you'd like to leave Milo?
0: I think I'd like to. I'd like to think that he has a similar philosophy to mum and dad and me, and my partner Lucy. Just ingredients, best ingredients you can buy. You can buy. Don't mess around with them too much, and um, yeah, and eat plenty of fish. <laughs>
2: Food writer and former human rights campaigner Yasmin Khan's first book, Zaitoon, Recipes and Stories from the Palestinian Kitchen, has been greeted with great acclaim. The late, great Anthony Bourdain called it a moving, hugely knowledgeable and utterly delicious book. I asked Yasmin how the recipes of the Palestinians can communicate the complexity of life in the Occupied Territories.
4: I focused on exploring Palestinian communities that live in Israel, the West Bank and Gaza. And, and the reason I wanted to do this book is to really kind of celebrate the, the stories and the culture and cuisine of this place and um, of, of Palestinian people. Um, I feel like it's an undistold kind of story in the culinary world and there's such a rich tapestry of recipes and agriculture and ingredients um, that I'm just really passionate about celebrating. Mm. So the book is really basically your sort of
2: trip around the Holy Land, looking at areas in the occupied Palestinian territories where you meet people and you cook with them. And there's a a difference between all the different areas. So there's a vast difference between Nazareth in Galilee, for example, and, say, Gaza.
4: Yeah, um, the Palestinian community is huge, you know, as well as, like, um, being the diaspora. It's it's also within that region. And so for the purposes of the book, I focused on, um, like, the food culture of Palestinian communities in Israel, the West Bank, and Gaza. And what was really extraordinary for me, even as someone who's, like, super familiar with Middle Eastern food, was just how distinct it was. So, the food from the Galilee is the is the cuisine that's most commonly, like, we associate with Levantine cuisine. So, you know, lots of kind of eggplants and um, peppers and tomatoes and asparagus and stuffed like kibbeh, which are these pounded um, football, sh- like mini American football shaped um, lamb meatballs. Um, so, very vegetable-based, very plant-based, very fresh, lots of herbs. And then you have the food of the West Bank, um, which is more more meat and chicken base so a lot more stews kind of grilled dishes and some of their famous dishes are this incredible kind of lamb cooked in kind of fermented way which is kind of in between a yogurt and a cheese or like juicy pieces of chicken roasted with sumac and red onions. Um, And then kind of going over to Gaza, the food is really distinct there as well. It's a lot more kind of fiery and pungent. So it's like the holy trinity of Gazan cooking is dill and chili and garlic, you know, used in really um, quite... Quite generous amounts um, and lots of seafood because, of course, Gaza is by the sea. I was going to ask you, are these ingredients
2: l- led by the, the the soil, for example, or are they brought there by different people who have settled there over time? I mean, you talk about Levantine food being a mix of Armenian and Persian and Jewish and Roman. Uh, I'm just wondering if those particular areas that you just mentioned then, have been set for thousands of years or whether these are people who are coming from different places through the diaspora bringing their food with them
4: actually I think it's just really regional one of the things that I found really interesting was that um, Palestinian food is just so seasonal and local it reminded me of kind of like travelling around Italy where you'd go from one village to another and like within like a few miles they would have completely different you know, versions of some authentic sauce. and I think that's what was really kind of refreshing um, for me to experience as a traveller because you literally, literally would go to one village where they just grew a lot of wild asparagus and that became a huge part of the diet um, so I think that's great especially you know as increasingly you know we're all being encouraged to eat more kind of locally and seasonally to see this embedded in a culture it's really lovely yeah
2: absolutely and and, you know most people in the Middle East have been eating a plant-based diet for many 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 years you mention in the book that somebody says to you actually you come here and you talk about our cultural distress I don't think they use that word but it's And then you go home and you make yourself the person who writes about a place that is culturally... Difficult.
4: I think it's a really important question for kind of writers to to think about because for me it's just basically about ensuring that in my writing I'm amplifying Palestinian voices. You know, my main mission with this book and the reason I wrote it was because I really wanted to humanise people um, from the Palestinian uh, communities to kind of build connection and to show through cuisine and sharing recipes, um, just that you know there is there, more in common that divides us. Um, And that's a
2: really important point, isn't it? I mean, you know, Israelis and Palestinians, they eat the same food. You know, it's heartbreaking, you know, across the whole of the Middle East. You know, so many people are warring
4: yet they sit down and they're all eating the same thing you know jewish and muslim and christian communities have been living in that region together for thousands of years and been doing so for the majority of that time in an incredibly peaceful and harmonious way and i think that's one of the the really important kind of takeaways from any exploration of the middle east through food is that there is more that unites people in that region than just been. and i think that's a really important message to take forward
2: George Pitkeetley is one of the youngest street food traders in London whose stall, Pilau, has already graduated to become two restaurants in central London and his Feed Yourself, Feed A Child initiative donates a meal to a child in India for every meal bought at a Pilau restaurant. He told me how a chance meeting with an Indian family launched this extraordinary enterprise.
5: I grew up in London, in North London, next to quite a few very, very good Indian street food places, takeaways, Um, have traveled to India with my brother a few times, fell in love with the culture, and fell in love with um, a family out there who have effectively taken us under their wing, or a a hetal especially, and nothing happens without her say so.
2: Fantastic, I mean, what does that mean, that you're in Skype contact with her
5: all the time, or what? Uh, WhatsApp, WhatsApp a lot. She came over here about a month or so ago, I'm planning on meeting her out in Goa. She's like the, basically just the Absolutely. best fairy godmother. Um, passionate about chutneys, mostly. And we met her um, in Mumbai at a religious festival, totally by chance. Um, and she took us under her wing, didn't let us leave her house or pay for anything or eat anything but. Why? Just
2: because you were a fresh faced young lad? I,
5: I guess so, yeah. She had a young family. Um, And I think, I don't know what it was, she had a a, a young boy and a girl and they didn't have any older brothers and I was there with my brother and we played with them a bit and so I think she just looked after us and since then it's, yes. I mean actually
2: the world is like that, we just forget that. Yes. You know, those magic moments happen all the time and and particularly in India. Yeah. Yeah.
5: And we we were sort of blown away by her generosity and someone that, I I know I'm I'm a victim of it, sometimes family, friends come over to London and I'll deliberately be out of the way and so the fact that she had nothing to do with us and really looked after us was something that was like we were humbled by it
2: now we have to get to the issue of your age sorry that's okay and i'm sure everybody asks you this again yeah i mean you, you were you started very very young at 19 you were at quo vadis yep. earlier than that
5: i was at arnold and henderson yeah and then went on to the rosewood in holborn
2: and you were the senior metro at the, at the rosewood.
5: senior at the rosewood and uh, restaurant manager at quo vadis and go, go back to there pretty much every day.
2: So is it is it hospitality? What is it that drew you into it?
5: Um, I love food and I love people that love food and I like to talk to people that love food and I like to talk to people that own businesses and specifically in the food industry. So we've had a huge influence by Richard Beatty and Russell Norman from Pulpo, um and Mel and Margot from Arnold and Henderson who have helped, um, I guess, shape the sort of, not necessarily the sort of food that we serve, but the way that we like to operate in hospitality.
2: You've got the other
5: touch about you, haven't you? I don't know about that. I don't know <laughs> You're about that, but I love it. I love you? I love it. Yeah.
2: Now tell us about feed yourself, feed the Your,
5: feed Your child. So feed yourself, feed the Your child was born again, sort of in this period when we were in in Mumbai, and we were blown away by um, the fact that we did nothing. Particularly special to be born in London, we were totally lucky um, and we felt like we needed to give back if possible. And so it's the simplest thing in the world. Every time someone eats in Pilau, either on Good Street or in Soho, we feed a child in India. How
2: does that happen? How does it work?
5: So we partnered with a charity called Akshayapatra, and Dipika is the CEO of the UK side. Um, and Every time someone comes in here in our till, it clocks up and then sends money to her, and they do all the wonderful work out there. So they've got, I think, 34 kitchens, but they're not actual kitchens, they're more like sort of like conveyor belt factories, and they turn out 60,000 rotis an hour. um, Yeah, so they're like huge scale. We've just done over 65,000 meals to children in India, um, but Akshaya Patra feed 1.4 million every day. So it's a small amount in what they do, but still we're proud of it. And my mum's proud, my grandma's proud. So that's, that's what we're about.
6: And Hetal's
5: proud. And Hetal's proud as well.
6: Hold up, what was that?
2: It's ten years since one of London's favourite theatre restaurants, Jay Shiki, launched its Atlantic Bar, and to celebrate, they've had a series of top chefs popping in to shake up the menu. I chatted with guest chef Mark Sargent, who has a number of restaurants, including Roxall in Folkestone, and Shiki executive chef Andy MacLean.
1: Well, I worked for about twenty years in London previously to going down to uh, to Folkestone. Obviously, thirteen years, anymore. thirteen of those anymore. with Gordon, yes, with you. Gordon, Gordon. Ramsay. Um, but I must say, like Sheikis and Scots, and you know, uh, have been massive inspiration. Actually, of what I did when I went down to Folkestone, because um, whilst we're not solely a um, a seafood restaurant, solely get it. Um, Whilst we're not solely a seafood restaurant, um, we are right on the coast, we overhang the sea, so we're all about the fish as well. And you know, I've been a big fan of Scots, a big fan of Sheikis and and actually the whole of the police group anyway for a long time. And um, so to say I was inspired by the food I'd eaten here before was a bit of an understatement really.
2: Andy, you're Mr. Sheiky, yep. really. Well, currently, Mr. Uh-huh. Sheiki. People come here because they know what they want. When people like Mark Sargent turn up, what happens to the, that, that very traditional Sheiky crowd?
0: Um, his menu is a really good fit with what we do, you know? I mean, looking at the dishes that he's put on, I mean, a lot of them could be Sheiky dishes, you know? I mean, the bass that he's done um, with crab chap potatoes and brown cap- ketchup, it's fantastic, you know? That, that is a really good fit. With what we do here at Sheiky, so yeah.
2: Did he give you a hard time in the kitchen?
0: Well, we'll find out tonight. <laughs> you know.
2: Mark told me what he'd learned from his Michelin pedigree to take into his current kitchen. So yes, I, I went
1: through. Whole, I had my own Mission star. When I worked with Gordon Ramsay, obviously, I had. You know, we were in the three-star, two-star kitchens, etc., etc., etc. And um, when I when I went, when I left Clarges, I was very much of the mindset that actually. For me, whilst I absolutely admire and respect and love what Michelin do, um, my restaurant's now much, much more relaxed. And when I said about taking some inspiration from Scots and Cheekies, basically it's all produce-driven, seasonal, simple cooking, which is just about the quality of the produce, um, uh, you know, it cooks perfectly, it tastes delicious, it looks appetising, but there's no necessary bells and whistles that go along with that as as more of the sort of the higher end fine dining things. People want to come in. They want to have delicious, excellent food. They want to be able to catch up with their mates and have fun and be loud and you know, kind of, uh, and then leave and, and want to go back. And some customers come to these sort of places two, to three times a week. And uh, and it, you would never do that in a kind of a high, high-end fine dining environment. So that's why, as soon as I wrote the menu for here, I did send the guys an email just saying, look, you know, don't be surprised if this is very simple, much more along the lines of what you guys already do, and it should be a good fit. So. I'm pleased to hear that it is.
2: Yeah. Folkestone and London. I mean, you know, masses has changed in British food culture. Is it OK to say that the people who love food in Folkestone are going to be asking for the same kind of food as they are going to be in London now? Is there a difference?
1: Yeah, so everyone's a foodie. And I think that's been the case now for at least 10 years now. And it just gets stronger and stronger all the time. From, from the early days when Jamie Oliver's getting all the male students to cook in the kitchens, which was amazing for our industry, to, to right through to all the amazing television programs like Rick Stein and, and Hugh Fairley-Whistell and all that, we've become a nation that's obsessed by watching and cooking. And, and that's amazing because like, you know, it wasn't so long ago where we were just not looking after ourselves with our food culture at all. Um, and so yes, I just think, you know, I did take a slice of London down to Folkestone with me in terms of the style of the restaurant and, that we've done and all that sort of thing, but it still has to be accessible to everyone in that sort of environment, and that area. And I think, actually, restaurants that do succeed are accessible to everyone. I'm sure people come in here. Now, this is classed as a very upmarket, posh restaurant. But you've got people that are coming from all over the country to to go to the theatre. And they'd love to come in here, and they can have a really beautiful prawn cocktail or some tempura prawns, and they understand that food. It's not kind of testing them too much and and it's it's not out of their boundaries and I think that's great but it's really good quality Um, and I think yeah so so people just generally all over the country are expecting better quality food it's
2: a series of of guest chefs isn't it what's the point of it for shaky
0: I mean there's a few reasons for doing it firstly it's great for the customers you know we've obviously got a massive group of regular customers if they can come and have a guest chef in here, bring a new sort of angle, new dishes. I mean it's good for me as well, you know I get a lot of ideas from it, seeing what other people are cooking. It's just it's just nice. It's like a little it's a talking point. It's good, it's a good thing to do.
2: And you can find TV actress and chef Lisa Faulkner in the kitchen on Tuesday, the 30th of October. Now, Trackleman's is one of those brands that's always in my fridge. Its sticky fig relish and fresh chilli jam jazz up just about everything I put on my plate. I asked the MD, Guy Tolberg, how it became the king of British relish.
7: I think because we start from a point of view of genuinely, really enjoying what it is that we do and the things that we create. So my father started out many years ago making his own whole grain mustard to go with sausages. He was in the sausage business. And like all great things, it grew from that stage. People liked it. And we are talking about the mid-70s where this was really quite a different uh, thing for people to be trying. It's a
2: different food climate for a start. A very
7: different food climate. You know
2: what your what Travance actually was adding even back then was a real sort of flavour to boring old British food. Yeah, well. That must have been a real leap of. Faith, a real interesting idea for your b- father to bring to british
5: food
7: yeah we 'd always had it and we 'd always been here, and I think we'd lost it maybe through a world war and everyone talks about you know, the sort of food rationing and as we came out yeah. of that, I think it changed yeah. and we always feel that we're we 're not vitally important as it were in, in in that sort of food culture but but leave us off the plate and you really notice yes, it so true. so one of those things that if you ever have, even if it 's cold meat, and I think cold meat and pork pies and and anything from our uh, pâtés are exactly our heritage. And therefore, the things that we make, the relishes and sauces that go with that, become part of it. Try it. Put it on a plate of cheese and don't put anything on there. See how you get on.
2: Or a barbecue. I mean, we're just coming out of barbecue season. You know, a barbecue without a relish is, is kind of unth- uh, unthinkable these days.
7: Yes, absolutely unthinkable. And whether or not that's some of the things that we started out to, the things we now make, whether or not that's onion marmalade, we make chili jam, those sorts of things that actually accompany what it is people are cooking and eating. You know, and we always say to people, if you've got a little bit of a jar left in the back of the cupboard... Put it, put it in something because what it is is concentrated flavour. We spent three hours making it to create this lovely concentrated flavour.
2: Like what? Go on, I'm excited now. Well,
7: if you've got some remains of sort of tomato chutney, just just put it, put it in a soup or a stew. Uh, l- last week I put it in a tomato sauce that the way we then use with chicken. I mean, it just works. It's like adding concentrated power, and and we really enjoy that. And you, you know, we've got these uh, this, these books downstairs which go back. I think the oldest might be 16th century, and they're all about preserving a food. And the fact that those accompaniments and roses, or travelments as we call them, were always there. They've always been part of cookery and food, certainly in Britain, but I mean across the, across the world.
2: Yes, it's extraordinary. So you're basically part of the Zeitgeist now. How does that feel? Oh,
7: crikey, it's taken us a little <laughs> bit of time to get there. But uh, but yes, I'll, I'll stay in the zone while, while, while we're here. And we'll keep doing, we'll keep trying different things. We've been making some things. Uh, I, I've been cooking up some things last week, including uh, the idea of perhaps doing things like bacon jam or chorizo jam, those sorts of things wow. that change. So it, it's always ongoing. And whether or not we do things, things like that and we launched them i don't know but we're always trying different things and different flavors
2: fantastic well onwards and upwards we look forward to track 3.1
7: yeah that'll do us here yeah. we're 50 years i think in 2020 so we'll go for that
2: <laughs> and finally jen bedlow food editor at delicious magazine is here with this month's top tips from the delicious test kitchen we're
8: always chatting about what we're making and things you know like somebody will walk in and um and do something a slightly different way and we'll, we'll sort of question that and think is that actually going to work is that a better way to do it um we love a, a tip to save some washing up which um one of our pals peter gordon um i think spoke to you about yeah he did dilly um wrapping his grater in a bit of parchment paper and zesting his lime, lemons and limes so he doesn't have to wash up the grater Fantastic. which looks brilliant yeah. Um, but other things um crop up as well we when we're developing recipes we we use ingredients that we can get quite easily actually i mean we're so lucky we we're, we're right by Borough Market with there's not a lot we can't get hold of but we're always thinking actually you, you know if you live somewhere else like i'm from Lincolnshire can you actually get that and do you even know what it is um and recently we've been using it we've had a lot of summer recipes um, going through the test kitchen and barata has been one of our big favorites um it goes with pretty much anything actually um a very simple prepare makes an amazing starter but do you know do you actually know what it is because actually mozzarella it's not just going and buying a bowl of mozzarella anymore you know you can you can get the buffalo mozzarella you can get an organic version and does that taste different so we've been trying it all out but burrata is the one that we we love and it's actually it's a ball of really brilliant buffalo mozzarella um but instead of just forming it and leaving it like that, they actually they get scraps of mozzarella and cream and then basically inject it into the middle. So when you cut into it, the ooze on the plate, I, I mean, it just, yeah, and it just adds, I don't know what it does. I mean, it's the eyes as well as uh, the flavour, and it just, it just really creamy and it, it's um we've got recipes coming up actually we've got loads on the website already so it's worth having a look to see what what flavors it's it does marry up with and we've got recipes coming up with figs and in the summer we you, to pair it with tomatoes it goes great with peas so if you've got frozen peas stashed in the in the freezer you want to an idea for using them up
2: and that's it from this week's delicious podcast next week i'll be back with Gil Mellor food writer and river cottage chef with his very first interview about his glorious new book, Time. Don't forget to subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Just search for The Delicious Podcast on your podcast app, or you can just Google The Delicious Podcast. Either way, you'll find all the episodes in the archive, and I'll see you next week.